This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back in time for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. To automatically get new episodes every Thursday, all you need to do is subscribe. Now, today we're looking at the remarkable life of Eleanor of Aquitaine, who lived from the early 1120s to 1204. Her precise birth date isn't known, but what is certain about her is that she was one of Europe's richest and most powerful women. Being an heiress, Queen of France, then Queen of England, which at the time held large swathes of territory in modern-day France, assured her of that status. She was married twice, as her title suggests, and produced ten children from her two husbands. She was even involved in a plot to remove her second husband as king, then became imprisoned but was later freed, and then continued to matchmake and play a part in political negotiations for her adult children. All of this and more she packed into around 80 years of life. Joining us to bring additional insight into Eleanor of Aquitaine's story now are our two guests for this podcast. Hello, I'm Lindy Grant and I'm um, Professor Emeritus of Medieval History at the University of Reading. I'm Stephen Brindle. I'm a senior properties historian at English Heritage. Thank you both for coming on to the podcast to discuss this fascinating life of Eleanor of Aquitaine. First of all, what do we know about Eleanor's early life and her family background? We don't know very much about Eleanor herself. Her father was Duke William X of Aquitaine. Her grandfather, a more famous and perhaps more colourful figure, Duke William IX of Aquitaine, was a great poet, a troubadour poet who wrote about love and sex and was a very colourful character. He ran off with somebody else's wife, the wife of the Viscount of Châtelherault. So Duke William was accused of a bigamous marriage. Duke William then made his young his son and heir, the future William X, marry the daughter of William the Ninth's mistress. And this woman was called Enor of Châtelherault. So she was Eleanor of Aquitaine's mother. So it was a really rather complex family situation in which Eleanor was born and brought up. But she wasn't the heiress to Aquitaine. She had an older brother, though he died young. Then her mother died. But her father was clearly intending to remarry and was hoping to have a son to inherit Aquitaine. But he went to Santiago de Compostela on penitential pilgrimage, and he died in Santiago. And, and on his deathbed, he named his oldest daughter, Eleanor, as his heir. And so suddenly, this little girl became heiress to this large duchy. And so her father left her in the care, the wardship, if you like, of his overlord, who was the King of France, Louis the Fat, Louis VI. And Louis VI immediately saw this as a huge opportunity and announced that young Eleanor would be married to his son, the future Louis VII, heir to the French throne. 
and Louis the Seventh of the future Louis the Seventh set off with a with a sort of splendid train down to Aquitaine, where he met young Eleanor at Bordeaux, and they were married there. And just shortly after the marriage, they heard that Louis the Fat had died of dysentery. So Eleanor was now suddenly not just the heiress to Aquitaine, but suddenly she was also, at a very young age, Queen of France. That's remarkable, isn't it? So tell us a bit more about these um, princedoms, because um, Aquitaine or Aquitaine, if we're saying it in the anglicised way, just remind us what part of France this is for people who aren't quite familiar. Aquitaine was is the southwest of France, effectively. The Duchy of Aquitaine was quite hard to put a clear border around. It went effectively from just south of the Loire because it, um, in fact, Eleanor's family were Counts of Poitou who had then become Dukes of Aquitaine as well. And then really most of the way down to the Pyrenees. So it was a huge and very wealthy area with lots of salt pans and wine. I mean, (laughs) all those wines that we still very much enjoy today. But it was an area that was not very strongly controlled by the Dukes of Aquitaine. It was the nobles, the nobility of Aquitaine were famously rebellious. But it was one of the great princedoms of the Kingdom of France. The kings of France themselves were not very powerful in the 11th and 12th century. And they just really controlled this quite small area around Paris and Orléans in the north of France. And the great princes of France, people like the Dukes of Aquitaine, the Counts of Champagne, of Flanders, and above all, the Duke of Normandy, who was also most of the time the King of England, were much more powerful in many ways within their areas, often much richer and much more impressive figures than the kings of France. And that's particularly true of the Dukes of Normandy, who, as I say, had become kings of England when William the Conqueror conquered England in 1066. So it's quite a sort of um, diverse political and power-related picture, isn't it, really? Yes, it's it's very unlike the sort of image that we have of the kings of England, who within England were very powerful, who really ruled England. And France is very different. France in the 11th and the 12th century is much more a sort of loose federation and one talks often of the King of France being first among equals, that often the great princes were almost as powerful as he was. The one thing that the King of France had over most of those princes is that he had been anointed and crowned as king, and they did accept that. But of course, the Duke of Normandy had been anointed and crowned as King of England. And that gave the Duke of Normandy... A special status. Special status. Mm. Mm. Very interesting. What do you think of all that, Stephen? It's quite different to our modern ears, isn't it? What you have to remember, Charles, is that power in the 12th century was very much about personal relationships, loyalty to a lord above you, um, the loyalty of the Duke of Aquitaine to the King of France, regularly renewed 
by acts of homage and by oath-taking and the loyalty uh, supposed or real of all the counts and viscounts and barons who lived with Aquitaine to them. So power, very much a matter of personal relationships and also about familial relationships. And those themes come very much into the story later on, don't they, Lindy? They do indeed. Yes, absolutely. Yes, this is becomes a story of charismatic people who really could have authority over potentially rebellious nobles, does one call them rebellious nobles, people who had their own view of how things should run. Their own agendas. Their own agendas. And Eleanor herself certainly grew into one of these powerful and charismatic figures. But she was very young when she became Queen of France. And at that stage, I don't think she had very much authority at all. But it is this familial relationships aspect which we've just discussed, which is very important to her becoming Queen of France, because it is a bit of a power grab by the King of France to get Eleanor's hand in marriage to his son. Yes, and and then he will have Aquitaine. And so her husband, Louis VII, runs Aquitaine insofar as he can. As her husband, he, he is Duke of Aquitaine in right of his wife. And he went there about three times, taking Eleanor with him. And he certainly tried to control Aquitaine. He didn't have much success at doing so. But he didn't really leave her any particular control over the duchy. He ruled it himself insofar as it was ruled in right of his wife. And was he much older than her as well? Because wasn't she a teenager when she married? She she was very young. They married in 1137. And so if she was born in 1124, she was 13 when they married. In those days, that would have been quite normal, wouldn't it? Yeah. It was indeed quite normal, yes. 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 Charles, we'll, um, we'll come to Eleanor's own daughters, who I think were all themselves married at 12 or 13. So quite normal. Indeed, yes. Mm. How much power did she wield then, even at that uh, comparatively young age uh, compared to modern times, even though she's uh, this big heiress and, and now Queen of France? As you say, power was very personal and it really depended, a queen's power depended on her influence over her husband. And actually, although Louis VII, who was also quite young, was said to have loved Eleanor in a very childish way, being absolutely besotted by her, uh, she was supposed to be very beautiful. I mean, many people mentioned how lovely she was. But in fact, he had a very powerful mother. So Eleanor had to deal with a mother-in-law who actually had far more power at the French court when she was young than she did. And it looks as though she had very little real influence on her husband. There was a real sort of scandal, which sort of happened quite soon after they arrived at the French court, in that her younger sister, Petronilla ran off with or eloped with or was was run off with, I think, probably, by a cousin of Louis VII, who was called Ralph of Vermondois. And Ralph was unfortunately already married to a niece of the Count of Champagne. So Ralph was accused of bigamy. And it sort of looked a bit like 
history repeating itself. I mean, Eleanor's own family background, William the Ninth and William the Tenth, was perhaps not very healthy from a marital point of view. You know, accusations of bigamy, almost incestuous marriages. So this didn't look very good. Both Petronilla and Ralph were excommunicated by the church and the great churchmen of the day, particularly the most famous and most powerful churchman in France, who was Bernard, abbot of Clairvaux, he really fulminated against this marriage and said, you know, it was just dreadful. And he said, you know, they will have no posterity. And he turned out to be right because their eldest son was a leper and their two daughters died without any children. So this, there was this terrible um, scandal, and we don't know quite how Eleanor responded, but we imagine that she supported her sister. Louis VII, his relations with the Count of Champagne got so bad that it became open warfare. And during that warfare, Louis VII set fire to a church in which a whole load of women and children had taken refuge and they were burnt. And it was seen as just dreadful. And it must have been an awful experience for Eleanor and her sister Petronilla. Obviously, you know, Louis felt terrible about this and they had to come to terms with the Count of Champagne. And I think it was a very distressing episode all round. Was this quite a black mark on her reputation then, even though obviously it wasn't really her fault? She was just the sister. That's right. That's right. Uh, She was just the sister. Modern historians have tended to assume that in this we see a lot of Eleanor's influence on Louis supporting Ralph of Vermontois. But we don't know whether that's the case, possibly, but uh, we just don't know. But it must have been very difficult. And it certainly didn't help Eleanor's reputation later on, though, by and large, this is not held against her that much. But it it must have been very uncomfortable at the time. Mm. But from one dramatic turn to another, we we, we now look at this episode where Eleanor and her husband, King Louis, had trouble conceiving. Yes, Although they were married in 1137, they simply had trouble having children. And um, Eleanor didn't know why. Uh, She later said that it was like being married to a monk. Louis was very pious. As I say, he was said to absolutely adore her, but clearly it just wasn't a very successful marriage from a sexual point of view. She eventually had two daughters, But she was so desperate that at one point in 1144, she found herself talking to St. Bernard, who'd been so horrible about her sister, and saying to Bernard, you know, what can I do? How can I get children? And Bernard said, well, you can pray, which, you know, (laughs) not very useful advice. But he also sort of said, "You, you must work to make peace between the king, your husband, and the Count of Champagne. And then perhaps you will have children. Well, she had a daughter. That wasn't very useful. The issue really for Eleanor was that obviously the wife of a king was supposed her key role was to produce an heir. That would make an enormous difference to the woman's power at court. If she was the mother of the heir to the throne, 
she would be much more established, have much more power than if she was not. And if she was not, there are plenty of examples of women who can't produce an heir. And in the end, usually their husbands will get rid of them because an heir is needed. At this point in history in France, was it most important to have a male heir? Of course. If you have a female heir, it can be very difficult. And in fact, there was a very obvious example of this, which they were absolutely aware of in France, in England, where Henry I of England died and he didn't have a son to succeed him. And he hoped to leave the kingdom to his daughter, Matilda, the Empress Matilda. In fact, the throne was seized by her cousin, Stephen, and the result was that exactly at this time, in the late 1130s and the 1140s, England and Normandy were racked by civil war between the Empress Matilda and her cousin Stephen. And so, you know, there was a very, very strong and very unfortunate example of what happens if you don't have a male heir. So it was hugely important both to Louis VII and indeed to Eleanor, because it just meant that uh, her own position at the French court would have been so much stronger had she been the mother of the future king. I think listeners are probably getting a good sense now of a a few dramatic turns and twists that um, will mean that uh, we get a new event in Eleanor's married life a little bit later. But before that, Eleanor and Louis go on a second crusade to the Holy Land, I believe, between 1147 and 1149, which is quite a long stretch, you know, two years. Was that trip to the Holy Land a success? (laughs) No, it's one of the great failures (laughs) from every point of view. They almost certainly went because, so this is the second crusade. You've had the first crusade in 1099. Now we have the second crusade, which uh, uh, had been preached by St. Bernard, it's Bernard again, um, and he really persuades Louis and Eleanor to go. And and I'm sure that penance for the awful burning of this church with these people in it during his war with the Count of Champagne, that lies behind their determination to go on the crusade. And so Louis sets off with this army. Eleanor's not the only woman who goes, quite a lot of women, grand women and camp followers, I suppose, go on it. This was normal on crusade. Um, I think they saw them as pilgrimages where you would have some fighting. And Louis decided to take the overland route. So they go via Constantinople, but they don't trust the Greeks. And they're left without very much food. And then they go through Anatolia where they're attacked by the Turks. And by the time they arrive in Antioch, in the Crusader state, they've lost lots of men, horses, money. They arrive in a very bad way. Antioch must have seemed like a great delight to get to, not least because the ruler of Antioch was Eleanor's uncle, Raymond of Aquitaine. Raymond got on very well with Eleanor so well that Louis was overcome with 
jealousy. And we simply don't know whether it was just a little bit of familial flirting with a niece and her uncle, or whether Eleanor did have an affair or anything. We, we have no idea. But we do know that um, Louis became very, very jealous. They had a huge row in which Eleanor said that she wanted to leave him. Actually, it's Eleanor who, who first says that she wants the marriage to end, which is interesting. But Louis just insisted. He forced her to come to Jerusalem with him. I mean, you know, just absolutely forced her to come with him. She wanted to stay in Antioch. So it was very unfortunate. The church sort of tried to persuade the great churchman tried to persuade Louis to sort of not do anything rash. They went on to Jerusalem. Louis tried to besiege Damascus, and that was a complete military disaster. So then they finally travel back, crossing the Mediterranean, where Eleanor is, is sort of briefly captured and held to ransom by the Greeks and has to be rescued by the Sicilians, and, and they go via Sicily. And then back via Rome, where the Pope almost literally tucks Eleanor and Louis into bed together and just sort of says, you know, just, just. You need to make things up, you know. Yeah. Think about your marriage. Think about France. Um, Goodness. And there are real efforts to repair this marriage, but they get back to France and, you know, it's clear that it's a complete disaster. And. Um, they go on one last trail round Aquitaine. I think that Louis must drag Eleanor along with him. Then he arranges this council at Beaugency, at which he ensures that the marriage between them is annulled. So in the end, it's, it's Louis who takes that initiative in a way to provide the divorce. But Eleanor is apparently the first person to sort of say, I think we should end this marriage. So I think possibly ended by mutual consent, but certainly from Louis's point of view, a key driver for ending the marriage is that she simply, after however many years of marriage it is, 1137 to 1152, has not produced an heir to the throne. Now, I've seen it written that the marriage was, you've said annulled, and I've seen it written that she was also divorced. So, I mean, are those interchangeable phrases at this point in history? Or is there a distinct sort of legal idea between the two? Charles, I think annulment um, would usually have been the case where marriage hadn't been consummated or there were no children, which did occasionally happen. But in this case, of course, Eleanor and Louis did in fact have two daughters who were both baptised and no one would have annulment would have rendered the daughters of the King of France illegitimate. So I don't think that can be correct because annulment would certainly have delegitimized, have illegitimized their children. So I think I'm fairly clear that it must have been divorced. Does that sound right, Lindy? Yes, I guess so. And I think that's why people are sort of use both terms, because I think what Louis managed was to persuade a court, that is the king sitting in his court with the council of the great laity and the great prelates of France that his marriage to his wife should be ended. And that's where I suppose one would use the term divorce. So he, he managed to get enough of the church on his side to agree that this should happen. 
Well, let's move on to her second marriage. Was Eleanor's second marriage more successful? And this is where England comes into the picture. Yes. Eleanor was now the heiress to Aquitaine, the Duchess of Aquitaine, in her own right. She went back to Aquitaine. At least two men tried to capture her on the way so that they could become Dukes of Aquitaine in her right. But she had almost certainly made some arrangement with the young Henry, son of the Empress Matilda and Geoffrey of Anjou. And they had met in Paris not that long previously to the divorce. And it seems to have been arranged. Henry at this stage, he's about 13 years younger than Eleanor, but he is the heir to the English throne. Through his father, he is Count of Anjou. So so his lands of Anjou and Normandy are absolutely adjacent to Eleanor's great duchy of Aquitaine. And so it makes a great deal of sense as a sort of alignment. It gives the the two of them this amazing power base of almost sort of half of, of France, really, a huge chunk of Western France. So they marry very quickly, and they seem to have no trouble producing children. Eleanor produces very quickly a son, And in the end, she produces several children with Henry, including, I think it's at least five sons, four of which reach adulthood. And not only that, so they marry in 1152. And then in 1154, King Stephen dies and Henry becomes King of England as well. So Eleanor is now not only Duchess of Aquitaine, Countess of Anjou, Duchess of Normandy, but also Queen of England. And a former Queen of France. So that's quite a CV, isn't it? It's quite a CV. It's <laughs> quite a CV. And the other thing is, I mean, Louis VII had hoped that he could keep Aquitaine and remain Duke of Aquitaine. But once Eleanor has a male heir to the Duchy of Aquitaine, he can't do that. So, so really, I mean, she got lucky by the fact that um, her uh, sibling died, her father died, she became this heiress, and she's acquiring a lot of power, status and wealth and lands through almost happenstance, really. Yes, I suppose that's right. But I mean, that's the case of most people. I suppose you could say that of Henry II as well. You know, he makes a very useful marriage and um, it does bring him this enormous area of of France. And of course, I'd said at the beginning that, you know, the the Duke of Normandy is one of the the great princes of France and and also King of England. And so um, that was true of, say, Henry I or, or William the Conqueror. But for Henry II, He's not only Duke of Normandy and King of England, but he's got Anjou and and then this huge Duchy of Aquitaine as well. And Eleanor is his queen. And Eleanor shares in all that. Eleanor shares in all that. And while Eleanor, she's much older now, she's much more experienced. And um, it certainly to start off with was a much more equal marriage, a sort of better match in a way, politically, I think... Henry trusted Eleanor to act as regent 
of England when he was often in the continental lands trying to sort of establish himself there. So in the first years of their marriage, Eleanor plays a really important role, I think, in that marriage. I'm not only she producing the children, but also she's often acting as regent for him in England. So she must have a much stronger sense of being politically effective, having some political authority within her family than she must have done in France as Queen of France. How many children did she have in total that survived to adulthood? She has two daughters with Louis, then with Henry. Four sons, three daughters live to adulthood. But there are other children as well. But it's four sons and three daughters who survive to be political players in their own right. Now, there was a bit more drama to come. There was a widespread revolt against Henry II, Eleanor's second husband, in 1173. What was Eleanor's role in this? This is not completely clear. The sons of Eleanor and Henry revolted against their father. That's Henry the Young King, his younger brother Richard, usually known as the Lionheart, the next brother, Geoffrey, who is Count of Brittany. And Richard really has been made Count of Poitou and and is going to inherit Aquitaine. The three brothers slightly squabbled among themselves as to who was going to get what, but they certainly felt that their father was not giving them very much power and they'd like some more. How far they were encouraged in this by Eleanor, we don't know. Quite a lot of chroniclers who were in a position to know said that it was said, as is said, that the revolt was instigated by Eleanor. But they're always very careful to say, as people say, as it was said. In the passive voice, yes. You know, whether they're not wanting to upset Eleanor that much at this stage, because they were writing actually when Eleanor was once again very powerful. But um, it is unclear how much of a role she played. Uh, The other person who clearly is playing a role destabilising the family, not surprisingly, is Eleanor's ex-husband, Louis VII, who discovers that he can invite the sons to Paris and sort of suggest that maybe their father should give them a bit more power and etc. So we simply don't know how much of a role Eleanor played in this, but she did certainly decide to go and join her sons. And I think she maybe left it a bit late, which is why one wonders whether she was a bit behind the curve, whether she was following rather than absolutely instigating. But um, I'm afraid she set off to join them, but she was captured by Henry's forces on the way. She was captured by her husband. Loads of people joined the rebellion throughout the entire Angevin realm. Lots of people thought that the old king was finished and that the future was the new young king, the young men, and that they'd better join the future. So perhaps it was not surprising that Eleanor made that decision as well. In fact, the old king, Henry, was not finished at all, and he managed to defeat his enemies He forgave his sons, but he, I think, couldn't forgive his wife, who he then imprisoned. Can you tell us whereabouts she was placed uh, as a sort of prisoner, really? Well, initially, Henry sent her mainly to a place called Old Serum, which is just north of 
Salisbury in Wiltshire. It was like the place from where the county was administered. It was in an area of England, in the Thames Valley and Wessex, where the Crown had a lot of royal parks and manors and forests and a lot of royal residences. And it's where the kings, Henry I and Henry II, tended to reside when they could choose where they were. And three of Henry II's favourite residences, Woodstock and Windsor and Clarendon Manor, were within this area. But Serum certainly wasn't one of his favourite residences. It was possibly the least attractive of them all, really. It was an old Iron Age hill fort on a hill north of Salisbury, a very dry area. It always had problems with water supply. The countryside around was all open chalk downland. And there was a small castle, not very spacious at all, and a small cathedral in there. And there was no park and no garden. And there was no water with which to grow a park. And really, it was, it was about the most isolated residence that Henry II could have found while actually being in the south of England in, in a fairly populous area. So that certainly doesn't suggest generosity on his part. I mean, we have references in the pipe rolls that she had a proper household. She wasn't like kept in a cell. She was treated with dignity. But Serum would not have been especially kind place to choose. Later on, she was kept more at Winchester. I think the household alternated between one place and the other. And great medieval households did really have to move around. They tended to exhaust the water supply, exhaust food supplies, fill the cesspits, so you had to move to another house. And the alternative place of where Eleanor was kept was Winchester. And later on in the 1180s, it was more at Winchester. That would have been very much nicer. For one thing, it was on the main roads, it was on the routes to the Solent for the crossing for France, and that made it important. And it was a major city with a great royal castle, with a great cathedral, where the bishop had a great bishop's palace, the richest bishop in England, there was a great Cistercian monastery there. And so there were great religious figures who could have helped to entertain the Queen and the Great Castle, and Winchester would have been very much more comfortable. And she, she was sent sort of luxury goods there to things, wasn't she, Lindy? Yes, she gets sent um, a wonderful gold gilded saddle with sort of uh, rich scarlet saddlecloth and things. So she must have been hunting there. And also when she's at uh, Winchester, one of her daughters who had been married to Henry of Saxony, Henry, Henry the Lion, They've had problems in Germany and, and have been exiled, in fact, and they come and sponge off <laughs> Daddy Henry II. So the daughter, Matilda, spends quite a lot of time with her mother, Eleanor, in Winchester. And so that must have been, things must have been better for Eleanor yes. then. But she's still not at the centre of sort of court politics at all. In Winchester, whereabouts was she staying? Was it various locations? It would have been the Royal Castle in Winchester, Charles. The one thing which survives on the site is called the Great Hall, uh, which was part of the castle, but it wasn't built then. It was built in, in the 1220s. So the site of Winchester Castle, behind where the Great Hall is now, and there isn't really anything visible left. The thing that would have been visible when she was there, part of Winchester Cathedral is still in its uh, Romanesque, the form it had then, and Wolvesey Palace, the palace of the Bishop of Winchester, the richest prelate in England, I'm sure it's very likely Eleanor would have been entertained there. So there you can see something which she would have seen there, but, but not the place where she actually lived. How long did this um, punishment in Old Serum and uh, Winchester last for? 
Well, it really, um, until almost the moment that Henry II died, really, mm. wasn't it, Lindy? She was let out really as soon yes. as he died. What year was that? Well, 1189. So we're talking about, um, what, 16 years, 16 years in captivity. And did she regain any political power then as a result of Henry II's death? Sounds like it was a great opportunity again. Well, goodness, yes, immediately. Their oldest son, Henry the Young King, who had been a very troublesome teenager and who had had a primary role in instigating the rebellion of 1173, he died rather unexpectedly in 1183. And Henry sent a churchman, I think the churchman who'd witnessed his death, to tell Eleanor, who was very, very devastated by it. So the heir in 1189 was Richard. And Lindy, I think we should add that by this time, the family was in tumult again at the time that Henry II died, weren't they? They were. Again, the French king had um, exploited the troubles between the sons. Henry the Young King died when he was attacking the lands of Richard, as who, in effect, was given Aquitaine. So there was a great deal of squabbling between them. But Richard had then joined the French king against Henry II. There was a new French king by this time. Louis VII died, and he had finally managed to produce an heir to the throne. It took him, it was the third wife he finally managed to produce an heir to the throne with. And this heir was called Philip, always known as Philip Augustus, Philip II of France. And Philip II was, turns out to be a much more formidable figure than Louis VII. He's still young at this stage, but he's very, in the 1180s, but very adept at setting people against each other. And he certainly exploits the problems within the Angevin family. And as I say, at the end, poor Henry is faced with um, demands by Philip and Richard. And then Henry is supposed to hear that his youngest son, John, has joined Richard and Philip, and and you know at that Henry turns his face to the wall and dies. <laughs> that's that's what they said. So yes, it's a very stressful family situation. Yes, because there's lots of children. There's squabbling between the siblings. Yeah. There's uh, yes the wife Eleanor trying to overthrow her husband Henry the Second. It's all a bit pretty messy, really. It was very messy and famously messy at the time, and. Um, produced a lot of comment by chroniclers about, you know, how dysfunctional this family was. And chroniclers increasingly began to see an important role for Eleanor within this, that that Henry had married a divorced woman and that how could you expect things to go right? And that's where these sort of suggestions that Eleanor had instigated the revolt against her husband that began to emerge from this. So chroniclers watched with fascination this um, family tearing itself apart. That idea about instigation is quite an interesting one because uh, we do know that later on she instigates and matchmakes for her children. So she has this role in Richard's 
succession, which is her second son, making sure that he has someone to marry because he actually acquires the throne, does he not, unmarried Richard the Lionheart? Yes, he he does. And just as, I mean, I said earlier that um, a queen is likely to have, you know, if she's got sons, if she um, she's likely to have tremendous power through her sons as a queen dowager. And that is exactly what happens with Eleanor, in fact. And Richard really trusts her. So she plays a very important role in his succession to the throne. In fact, she goes round, he asks her to almost go round England and sort it out while he's still on the continent before he comes for his coronation. But yes, he is also unmarried at the time and a marriage needs to be arranged. He's been betrothed for some time to a daughter of Louis VII, but Richard doesn't want to go through with that for various reasons. And politically, Richard, I think, needs an ally to protect his southern border. So he needs a a Spanish ally. And so he wants an arrangement with the King of Navarre. And he sends Eleanor off to, I think, do the final negotiations on that and to bring the daughter of the King of Navarre, who's called Berengaria, to Richard for the marriage. So whereabouts in Spain does she head off to, if people are looking on their maps? Well, the Kingdom of Navarre, Charles, really spanned the Pyrenees, but then most of it was on the Spanish side of the Pyrenees. And if you think of it being due south of the Pyrenees and about a third of the length of the border and stretching quite a long way, and King Sancho entertained Eleanor at his castle of Olite, and they set off back, but not back to England, because here we have to jump back, don't we, Lindy, to Richard's accession. And his major priority was to go on crusade again, because in the very recent past, there had been a catastrophe that had occurred to the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. The great Islamic ruler Saladin had destroyed the kingdom of Jerusalem's army and taken the kingdom, which was reduced really to a few coastal fortresses, principally to Acre, but Jerusalem had fallen. And the papacy and the religious leaders were all saying to the kings of France and England, the other rulers, you must go to the aid of the Christian kingdom in the east. And so for Richard, this seemed an immensely high priority. And when he succeeded to the throne in 1189, he was really then working towards raising money and raising an army to head east. So Eleanor had to transact quite a lot of the business of succession to the realm and ensuring its loyalty on his behalf before she then gets sent to Spain to negotiate his marriage because Richard had his eyes elsewhere. And by the time she'd agreed a marriage with Sancho of Navarre to Berengaria, Richard had already reached the Mediterranean. And so Eleanor, who by this time, remember, is already about 66, then has to set off in pursuit of her son, with his intended wife. And uh, where was it she caught up with them, Lindy? It's She got to Sicily, but they'd already left. Yes, yes, Sicily, and, and they go on to Cyprus, and, and Eleanor goes back via Rome, where she does more business for Richard. I mean, he really, after these years of um, being 
tucked away in Old Serum and Winchester, suddenly Eleanor has this late flowering as being very powerful indeed, really almost acting as regent for Richard, doing absolutely major negotiations for him because a marriage is about major diplomatic relationships between powers. So it's almost akin to laying the path for Richard, but also tidying up after him. She does both. She does both. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. Which is what all mothers do, I suppose. They prepare their children for life and then they tidy up after them, you know, when they haven't tidied away their toys or whatever. Indeed, Richard was a particularly high maintenance son in this respect because of what came next. As we know, on his way back from the Third Crusade, he was captured by Leopold, Duke of Austria, who was one of a number of people he had bitterly offended on crusade. Richard had had managed to have blazing rows with Philip Augustus of France and with Leopold, Duke of Austria. I think that there were questions of people's flags being taken down and replaced by Richard's flag and that kind of thing. So Richard's travelling overland falls with a very small escort, falls into the hands of Leopold, Duke of Austria, and is imprisoned. So there's a massive political crisis in England, which Eleanor then had to to mop up that too. Yes, I mean, Richard hadn't perhaps set things up ideally for when he was away. He he leaves in charge a man called William Longchamp, the, the Bishop of Ely, who just doesn't seem to have been up to the job. Famously tactless. The other problem is the younger brother, John, who certainly sees the possibilities of his brother being out of the country. And once they discover that Richard has been captured, Philip Augustus of France, who has come back early from crusade, does his best to persuade the emperor to keep Richard for as long as possible. Meanwhile, he allies with John to persuade John to claim as much of Normandy, I suppose, as he can, to create as much trouble as he can. And it's really Eleanor who has, again, Richard's full trust. It's Eleanor who sorts this out. And she goes to England. She she bangs heads together. She organises this huge ransom that's being demanded for Richard. She goes to Germany to negotiate and then comes back and then continues raising the ransom and then goes back to meet Richard when he finally is let free. So I think some of the, um, at least two of the hostages, because there are hostages given when Richard is set free, that two hostages on the German side are handed over to Eleanor. So she plays an absolutely major role in keeping the show on the road during this great political crisis and resolving it and sorting the whole thing of the ransom. So really, really major. It's one heck of a thing for a king of England to be taken prisoner and held. Yes, and rather shocking to contemporary opinion because Richard was a crusader and supposedly therefore under the church's protection. But for his enemy, he had very powerful enemies. Eleanor's task during his captivity was, was even more complex than that because John spread false rumours that Richard had been killed and seized a number of royal castles, garrisoned them with his own mercenaries. I mean, he was really trying to pave the way 
it seems, for, for a potential coup. By this time, fortunately, William Longchamp had been replaced by a much more capable man called Walter of Coutances, who Eleanor was really ruling with. And when John's rebellion broke out, Eleanor and Walter of Coutances, in addition to negotiating over Richard's release and raising the ransom, they had to raise armies. And Eleanor herself said to accompany the army, which went to besiege and capture Windsor Castle and take it off John's garrison. So although she was now in her later 60s, she was behaving with the energy of a woman 30 years younger. I mean, the chronicler Richard of Devises wrote that she's now, even now, unwearied by any task and provoking wonder at her stamina. How did she then influence who would be successor to Richard? Well, I think the first point we have to make, Charles, is that Richard was killed very unexpectedly. And although I think he had made a will recognising John as his heir, his death when it came came as a total shock out of the blue. That's fair, isn't it, Lindy? Yes, it is. Yes. Richard was in Aquitaine besieging a castle, rather a small castle, called Chaloux-Chabrol, castle of another rebellious vassal in Limousin, which was one of the more hazily controlled areas of Aquitaine when he was killed, because he wasn't properly armoured and he was killed by an arrow fired from the battlements and he lived long enough on his deathbed to I think to recognise John as his universal heir but there were other potential heirs notably there was Arthur who was the son of their brother Geoffrey the Count of Brittany Henry II had married Geoffrey to Constance heiress to the neighbouring county of Brittany but Geoffrey had died aged 27 in 1187 with at the time no son and Arthur was born posthumously the following year in 1187 and by this time the time Richard died Arthur was just probably just barely into his teens so there is another potential heir there and there's Philip Augustus who with the formidable Richard out of the way finally sees his chance to take the Angevins down I think we can say. Ah I see. And Arthur, you know, it's an interesting name. Yeah. Arthur of Brittany, but also obviously referencing King Arthur. So when Constance names, Constance Brittany names the posthumous son, she is giving him a name that is a bit flag-waving. And Richard, certainly at various stages, played with suggesting that Arthur of Brittany will be his heir to sort of upset John, you know. So, in fact, it seems that Eleanor plays a very, very important role here in keeping the whole Angevin realm together and ensuring that John will inherit it as one piece. For for reasons which I think are not absolutely clear, she seems to have not wanted Arthur to inherit And uh, she and her troops defeat the people in Anjou who are supporting Arthur. In fact, in Anjou, Arthur would have been the proper heir because the inheritance would have been slightly different from the inheritance patterns in Normandy and England. But Eleanor and some of Richard's troops defeat those who are supporting Arthur in Anjou. And the other thing that Eleanor does in order to ensure that Arthur can't get the Duchy of Aquitaine, she herself does homage to Philip Augustus. And that means that Arthur can't have any claims to Aquitaine. 
and then that John will hold Aquitaine from Eleanor and that John will then inherit Aquitaine from her. So that's a really important aspect of keeping this whole collection of polities together. And and Eleanor clearly seems to think that that's a very important thing to do. Yes. And it's one thing to be arranging things on behalf of your numerous children, but wasn't she also involved in arranging the marriage of the King of France, Philip Augustus's heir? She's got a hand back into uh, French politics, not just um, the throne of England. Yes. Although, I mean, this is a very um, complex arrangement. When Richard gets back from crusade, he really manages to push back all the gains in Normandy that Philip has managed to make while Richard is in prison. But at the end of his his life, he's in the middle of arranging a treaty with Philip, which will say exactly who has what in terms of that Norman, French Norman border. And Philip insists that this treaty will be underlined by a marriage between one of Richard's Castilian nieces, because Richard's sister has been married to the King of Castile, one of those nieces and Philip's heir, Louis, who will become the future Louis VIII. So that's in negotiation. Eleanor is probably quite involved in that, but we don't know particularly. But then Richard dies, and it's John who is then left negotiating the treaty on a much less strong footing. And in order to inherit the Angevin lands, Normandy and Anjou, John has to pay a huge amount of money, a relief to um, Philip, and do homage. But still, Philip wants the Castilian niece to marry his son. And John sends Eleanor all the way down, 1200, all the way down to Spain, to Burgos, to Castile, to choose the niece who is going to go back and marry the heir to the French throne. Although at this stage, Philip still supporting Arthur's potential claims to the Angevin Empire, because Richard died without a son and John doesn't have a son at this stage. So there's no clear son and heir at this stage. And so Philip is still supporting Arthur, but he also sees the possibility of a future claim through a granddaughter of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, this this niece of the king and queen of Castile. And Eleanor goes and chooses uh, her granddaughter called Blanche and brings her back until they get, Eleanor gives up at Fontevraud. She's, she's, she's exhausted then. And poor little Blanche, who is 12, you know, <laughs> the usual age, goes on and is married to the future king of France. Turns out to be a formidable, very much her grandmother's granddaughter. But they certainly do press Blanche's claims to the remains of the Angevin Empire. And indeed, in 1216, the future Louis VIII and Blanche of Castile invade England to claim the English throne in Blanche's name. They don't succeed. Well, that's another one for another podcast. But um, just sort of wrapping up Eleanor's life then, um, towards the end, obviously very much involved in 
travel, negotiating for her children, laying the path for her children or, and tidying up after them, as we've described, and being a matchmaker, effectively, just trying to ensure that, uh, I suppose, the line continues through her children. I think we should talk about marital strategy, yes. developing marital strategies, and these are major diplomatic arrangements with huge potential ramifications. And so I think rather than just seeing her as a matchmaker, we should see her as someone when she's involved in these marriages, this is playing a huge and very important political and diplomatic role in um, arranging diplomacy at a European scale. Yes, I think if it was a board game and it was Eleanor the Eleanor of Aquitaine board game or something, you'd have lots of pieces on a map across most of France, England, and you know, it's, it's sort of, there'd be monopoly cards as well. <laughs> I think the idea of an Eleanor of Aquitaine board game is absolutely wonderful, <laughs> I have to say. But it just dis- sort of describes, I think, in a good way, the, the real complexity of everything that's going on, because we've got lots of children, we've got lots of travel, we've got crusades, we've got marrying one husband, then moving on to another one, having more children, trying to secure legacies for those children, trying to secure thrones for those children, trying to secure influence, lands, power, money. And it is European-wide. So one of her daughters is married to the King of Sicily and another one, as I say, to uh, Henry the Lion in Germany and then the third daughter to the King of Castile. Um, The marriage with the King of Castile in 1170 is absolutely arranged by Eleanor. We have the document from that, and it's clear that Henry II just lets Eleanor handle the whole thing there. And uh, Lindy, we can also say that it was the crisis over another royal marriage which precipitated the last great crisis of Eleanor's life and the fall of much of the Angevin Empire. And this had to do with a man called Hugh of Lusignan. The Lusignans were a famously difficult French dynasty, very, very difficult to deal with. They were among the most powerful, but also most demanding vassals of the Dukes of Aquitaine. And Hugh was betrothed to a very, very young bride, was she 10 or 11, Lindy, called Isabella of Angoulême. An heiress, another heiress, not as grand as Eleanor, but still a useful heiress. Mm. And John became either besotted by her Mm. and was attracted by the idea of an heiress. And he carried off Isabel, who was betrothed to Hugh of Lusignan. And this really presented Philip Augustus, their overlord of them all, of Queen of France, with a great opportunity, didn't it, Lindy? It did. I talked about, you know, at the beginning of the 12th century, the King of France was really just primus inter pares among these, first among equals, again, among these great princes. By the end of the century, that really has changed. And that is very much due to Philip Augustus, who sort of reorganized the administration of the French king, who put a lot into developing Paris and the area economically, but also had a sort of lawyer's sense of working sort of six moves ahead and how he could ensure that these great princes actually had to do homage to him, were dependent on him, had to accept his judgment. And he 
encourages Hugh of Lusignan to come and complain to Philip as the overlord of King John about John's bad behavior too, because a lord had obligations to his vassals, just as the vassal had to his lord. So the complaint from Hugh comes to Philip's court, and Philip calls John before his court to say, you know, you have to answer this. And John just sort of says, oh, you know, stuff, get stuffed or something. Perhaps it's in more diplomatic terms, but he certainly doesn't turn up. And so Philip is able to have a judgment against John in his court to say that John has not turned up to answer these these questions. He is in contempt of court. And as a result, he should be deprived of all his continental domains. And so that Philip gets that as, if you like, a court judgment against John. And that gives Philip the legal right to attack, particularly Normandy. Um, He attacks um, other of John's lands, but particularly starts attacking Normandy from 1202. And John just doesn't really react very uh, sensibly. I think he's he spends far too much time in England. He's not in Normandy enough. He's supposed to be so besotted with Isabel of Angoulême that he's spending too much time with her. I think there's also one chronicle says that he's spending too much time having baths. We might think that's a good thing, but, you know. And he loses the trust of the Norman aristocracy. He's, he's behaved pretty badly on several occasions. He's been seen as a traitor towards his brother, doesn't look good, and people see him as untrustworthy. You can't believe a word he says. And he loses the trust of the Norman aristocracy. And actually, Philip, I'm afraid, takes Normandy with relative ease. And that, in 1204, will be the end of the Angevin Empire. Yes, there was one last great crisis involving Eleanor too in this extraordinary story. Eleanor was in retirement at Poitiers and at the Abbey of Fontevraud, hearing ever more disturbing rumours about loyalty to John Slipping, because as Lindy says, he had personality flaws which were advertised across Europe going back years. People didn't really trust him. Philip Augustus was determined to undermine his rule in France, and how far this was about personal trust and thinking that you could rely on the person on your overlord. Well, Eleanor travelled towards Poitiers, thinking she'd be safer there, and her nephew Arthur heard that she was on the road with a small household and made a dash, Arthur being 15 years old, wrote his course, thinking she would capture his grandmother, and a standoff ensued at a place called Mirabeau with Eleanor and her household trapped in the castle keep. Arthur, who's about 15 years old, besieging her in the town. John hears that his mother is in trouble and makes an extraordinary dash, a sort of burst of real Angevin energy. And in 48 hours, he travels 80 miles to defeat Arthur's forces, rescue his mother and capture his nephew, Arthur. And this was the last great adventure of Eleanor's life. 
After that, she withdrew to the Abbey of Fontevraud. But as to Arthur, he disappeared into the dungeons of Rouen, and he was almost certainly murdered there on John's orders. And this, this was in 1203, this was really like the last nail in the coffin of John's reputation, the fact that not only had he been legally deprived by a judgment of his king for taking another man's wife, but he was also universally suspected of having actually ordered the murder of his own nephew and rival heir to the Angevin domains, Arthur. So John's reputation was really dealt a fatal series of blows in this year from which Philip profited immensely. And he also profited from John's indecision. He simply wasn't Richard. He didn't have Richard's energy and focus and military talent. And Eleanor would have witnessed this and heard these successive tales of disaster being brought to her in her last years. But despite all that, all those black marks against John, Eleanor herself had attracted a black legend, I understand. Uh, What were people saying about her at the time? Yes, the French call this a black legend. Contemporary chroniclers were, who were usually churchmen, were not always very fond of powerful women. They saw women as, you know, descendants of Eve and by definition likely to be nothing but trouble. Though it has to be said that many contemporary churchmen chroniclers disliked the powerful in general, so they they disliked kings as well. And Eleanor, perhaps more than any other woman of her age, powerful woman of her age, did get this reputation. And I suppose it is partly, particularly sexual. She was clearly seen as somebody who, first of all, had had these problems with her first husband, By the 1160s, there were rumours about what had happened in Antioch with her uncle Raymond were circulating. And one chronicler, Richard of Devizes, who was actually very pro both Richard and Eleanor, but he does say, more or less in sort of small letters, don't mention the Second Crusade, shush, you know, because of what happened there. So then, of course, she's a divorced woman who then... Uh, marries again. And people who began to criticise the Angevins and Henry II and Richard attracted plenty of critics themselves, not least Henry II after the whole debacle with Thomas Beckett. And so Eleanor is seen as playing her role in this whole dysfunctional family. So the whole thing about instigating the rebellion against her husband's And these rumours sort of just get worse and worse, I suppose. And by the early 13th century, you know, the rumours about Eleanor as this sort of wicked woman are getting more and more exciting. So one French writer, somebody called the Minstrel of Reims in the 1260s, he has a wonderful sort of gossipy sort of view of recent history, which purports to be history. But the Minstrel muddles the Second and the Third Crusades. And and he has this thing of Eleanor having an affair with Saladin. Of course, Eleanor went on the Second Crusade. Saladin fought Richard on the Third Crusade, but um, the idea that, you know, Eleanor has this affair with her son Richard's great Islamic enemy is sort of wonderful fantasy that's really sort of doing the rounds in the 13th century. So, so yes, Eleanor does attract 
a lot of sort of vitriol, if you like. So based on that sort of black legend then, how do 21st century historians like yourselves summarise Eleanor of Aquitaine? I think she was somebody who very much enjoyed power and and learnt how to use it. Very interestingly, she doesn't use all the levers of power available to a woman. She doesn't seem to have developed a very good relationship with the church. And that might be one of the reasons why she has such a black legend. Obviously, you know, she really comes into her own as the mother of King. And that's where her experience, tremendous experience and her diplomatic range, her connections allow her to play this incredibly important role in the history of England and and indeed the history of France. What's your view, Stephen? How would you summarise Eleanor of Aquitaine? Well, I think she's a highly intelligent, charismatic woman who had to make her way, albeit with certain formidable advantages, in a male-dominated world. And she knew that power then was about relationships, about impressing and charming people, about leadership, and about providing a sense that you are a worthy lord and someone who can be relied on. And there were moments in her life when she joined her son rebelling against her own husband, but they're all to do with her sense, as Lindy said, that power is either expressed through marriage to a king or being mother of the next king. And Eleanor then throwing her lot in in this critical moment with her sons, who's passionately loyal to her sons as well as to her husband. And that passionate loyalty is really carried through to the end of her life when she's sitting in front of her and fretting about John and the way in which he seemed to be losing the Angevin Empire. She's a remarkable woman who extended her authority and her personality really as far as it could possibly be pushed in the circumstances of her time and was inherently trusted by her sons, in particular by Richard, in a way which made her one of the great political players of the age. And she was recognised as a really remarkable personality at the time. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be finding out about the castles of Richard III and the Wars of the Roses. Until then, thank you for listening and see you next time. Thank you.